Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. All right, Danny, we're, we're back for another Gov Actually. We have a very, very special guest star today, and I'm going to ask you to introduce him. So, so yeah, so I will get to the introduction. First, a little background. So, as I think you know, and a lot of people know, since the last time we podcasted, Disney Plus released Hamilton the Musical, right? And so... I uh, watched it uh, a lot uh, and got so excited by it that I uh, read Chernow's Hamilton because I said, this is one of those situations, usually you read the book and then you see the movie. This was me kind of seeing the movie and then reading the book. A lot Um, of people did that with Jaws, by the way. Is there a book, Jaws? I didn't even know there was a book. By Peter Benchley, absolutely. Oh, really? Yeah. I also read Hamilton, uh, Chernow's book, Hamilton, uh, before I went to the Treasury Department. Oh, so you did it the reverse, and before you saw Hamilton, right? Obviously. Yes. Um, Yeah. I actually just saw Hamilton when it came out um, uh, on Disney+. Plus. I had a chance to go see it, but there was some circumstance that kept me from going. It was like in the first month that it came out, I was so obsessed with Hamilton in Chernow's book. Like this has got it. This, my wife was shocked. Like you want to see a musical? And I'm like, yes, this is the one I want to see. And then right. it didn't work out. But so my, I have this. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say my copy of Hamilton, my copy of Chernow's Hamilton, I had signed by uh, two secretaries of treasury and, and Ron Chernow. That's how completely geeked out I am on it. But, so I have this like dream and hope that that one day I'll be treasury secretary, not because I want to be treasury secretary. Are, but, you, are you lobbying for the position here? No, of actually, but, but here's the but here's the dream that one day I become treasury secretary and then I I go to see Hamilton at, in, on Broadway and then like at the end they acknowledge that the secretary of treasury is actually here. And so my question for you is kind of like the vice president. Yes, exactly, but sort of differently, if you get my meaning, right? Depends on how good a treasury secretary you are. And my question for you is, do you think if you would have went, you could have gotten them to acknowledge that the chief financial officer of treasury was in the audience? There's so much material there about (laughs) acknowledged as the CFO of the treasury department. No, I'm I'm pretty sure I would have been on the 14,000th row and and I, I would have felt like it was like weirdly inappropriate. Like, wouldn't that be considered a gift, right? When you, well, you would pay for your own ticket. Yeah, you definitely have to pay for your own. The ticket. gift is right. the acknowledgement and the adulation of the adoring exactly, fans. Exactly. Wouldn't that be an emolument? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> the boost to your ego is worth a lot of money. So and much. You can't. Yeah. So yeah. much money. Yeah. Okay. So, so let me I'm get to that. I'm glad that didn't happen. I'm glad that didn't happen. No, it wouldn't have been hard. So let me get to the rub. So I'm reading the book and it's just actually to me shocking um, the, the amount of infighting and squabbling 
and politics and partisanship and toxicity that went on during the founding of our nation. And you've got all of the, you know, this folklore of, of, of how all these men were, you know, kind of driven more by their ideals than, than politics in forming this union. And when you start to kind of peel back the onion layer on it, it, it just isn't that way. So what are you for, Burr? <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, like the Federalists and the Republicans really hated each other back then. And, and so I called, I phoned a friend, uh, my friend Dave Fisher, who's joining us saying, Dave is a very close friend who also is a former federal colleague and has a, had a long and storied career in government. And, and in particular, he was the first ever appointed chief risk officer at the IRS and appointed by me. Um, I stole him from the Government Accountability Office, where he was the chief financial officer. And when they make the musical about David Walker, which they will, then Dave Fisher can sit in the audience and say, I'm actually the CFO of GAO and, and get the adulation. Um, you might actually get acknowledged. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But I called Dave because Dave is a presidential historian. He moonlights as American history buff, and in particular, an expert on presidents. So I called him because I really wanted to understand what I had been missing and really and start to relate to the toxicity of politics we see today to what we saw at the founding. And so, so in the- Like we have Doris Kearns Goodwin on Gov Actually, is that what this is like? That's what I'm saying. So exactly. given we try to be topical on Gov Actually, and, and move with the way the nation is moving in and around the release of Hamilton and a little bit of a break from COVID and all the stress that that causes. I thought we'd talk about Hamilton and Jefferson and Washington and Madison and Monroe and how they all kind of hated each other. And, uh, <laughs> and well, some of the, well, Hamilton and, Jeff and Washington liked each other, but they hated Jefferson. And just ask Dave all about it and see if we can learn something from that past and see what kind of optimistic threads we can pull for our future. So with that, Dave Fisher, welcome to Gov Actually. Thank you so much, Danny and Dan. Appreciate Big it. Ramp Great up to be here. Big, That's right. Big ramp up. Big ramp up. So let me start the questions by saying, like, when you started to dig into presidential history, on the foundation of the things you learned in high school and, and American History 101 in college, did you sense a disconnect between an idealized version of the founders and what really went on in that time period? Sure, and particularly with the founders, because you know, we have this sense of what they were, what they represented, what they accomplished, all of which has, you know, been impactful not only for our country, but for the whole world. But how the sausage got made um, was pretty messy and uh, very personal. Um, and that was both, you know, pr prior to the declaration, through the war efforts, into the post, you know, the, the constitution and the post period. Some of these people were the closest of friends then they became the biggest of enemies. Some were never friends, some stayed friends. It was, it was personal, it was political, it was ideological. Some rose above, 
but some really got in the mud. And it was this, this combination of trying to figure out what this country was going to be. I mean, you've got to remember, nobody had ever done this before. There were no demo democracies or democratic republics in the world in 1787 when we wrote the Constitution. It was, you know, and now it's like there's almost 90 of them or something like that, almost 4 billion people live under that kind of government today. I mean, imagine just what kind of a catalyst this was that the American founding was, but nobody knew how to do it. And, and that was one of Washington's biggest things on his mind where for Washington, who was the one true sort of virtuous leader that did always try to rise above, although he had his petty squabbles, um, precedent setting was such a big deal to him because he knew people were gonna follow that lead and he took that very seriously. And in many cases, he was really successful. There's precedents that he set that we still follow today. There's others that you know maybe we should and we don't. So it's kind of a combination, but um, it, was, it was a messy time that generated though um, really quite remarkable outcomes given that again, nobody in the world was really able to do this thing where people could elect their own leaders and have a say in removing those leaders and putting somebody else into those spots, just didn't happen in the world back in the 18th century. Now, uh, you, you speak about the messiness and it's hard not to draw parallels to maybe some current times. My question is though, was it messy more often than, than not? It, it got pretty messy pretty fast. So again, if we're looking at it for the constitutional period, starting when Washington was inaugurated in 1789, um, you mentioned Doris Kearns Goodwin, and of course her book, Team of Rivals for Lincoln's Cabinet. The way I look at Washington's cabinet, it wasn't a team of rivals, they were just rivals. They weren't a team. I mean, Jefferson and Hamilton were true opposite ideologues that had a different view of what the country should be like. And they fought all the time, and Washington obviously leaned toward Hamilton. He was more of a federalist leaning, uh, stronger, centralized government kind of person, whereas Jefferson was completely the opposite. Um, and they battled in the cabinet, they battled in the press, they battled but, but, uh, really for the future of where the country was gonna go. But the way you're describing the fighting though, what really surprised me, like, if, like just listening to that, because it's Jefferson and Hamilton, I'm picturing Mr. Smith goes to Washington type fights, like, you know, but, but if you, if Chernow's account is accurate, Jefferson in particular fought really dirty, yeah. you know, really dirty. Like, it's just shocking because I lionize and idolize Jefferson for his nobility, staring at the Jefferson Memorial my whole life, you know, and and now I think we're starting to come to terms with some of Jefferson's legacy around slavery, which is, you know, a different topic, which we can get to later in the podcast. But just the, the, the way in which Jefferson kind of like glossed over the elements of the French Revolution that were really dangerous and, and, and disconcerting in terms of the murder of people and the way in which he potentially, if you believe Chernow's account, which I guess I do because he's a historian, kind of fueled uh, untruths about Hamilton in the media. It's like, this was fighting, but like, like the type of fighting, I guess that we kind of see today in terms of toxicity. 
Jefferson is a very different animal, I think, than what most people perceive. Um, and for what is the perception? Well, it's based on one thing. He wrote the Declaration. And those words at the beginning of the Declaration, along with the Gettysburg Address, are the most profound American words probably ever written. You know, true, what do we believe is the vision of America are embodied in those words. And by the way, nobody writes better than Jefferson. I mean, his letters, his prose, it's symphonic the way he writes. Nevertheless, he was totally right in his own epitaph, which he put three things on his epitaph. Author of the Declaration, the first religious freedom uh, statute in the United States, and the establishment of the University of Virginia. Those were the three great things that Jefferson did. Beyond that, Jefferson's a big challenge, I think, for people who get into his character, his personality. He was selfish, he was hypocritical, he was thin-skinned, he was morally superior, he was disloyal. You, you mentioned in the press, he would always have, again, this plausible deniability. So he had an, or, you know, a, a, an organ, which all politicians had back then, called the National Gazette, this guy, Philip Furneaux. Um, who was an employee of the State Department while Jefferson was Secretary of State. And he was cranking out these anti-Washington, anti-Hamilton, anti-Federalist scathing comments on a daily basis to the point where Washington went to Jefferson and said, you got to get rid of this guy. Because Washington was pretty thin-skinned himself. And he said, I can't take this anymore. And Jefferson said, no, I'm not getting rid of him. And he allowed, but that also gave him an arm's length. Oh, I didn't write it. I'm not the one who put the pen. It was this Furneaux guy who was doing it, but it was all off of Jefferson's stuff. And, and you can go through the rest of Jefferson's career through his presidency and find these themes where, again, political fighting was part and parcel of his character for someone who actually hated face-to-face -face confrontation, despised it. He was really good at it behind the scenes. We jump from Washington to Jefferson, meaning we left out Adams. Yep. Um, that happens a lot. And if you, if you listen, you know, if you're, if you're a, a, a student merely of the Hamilton musical, you would think that Adams was just kind of this speed bump, door stop, you know, stop in between two meaningful stations. What, what's your view there? So I'm actually a big fan of Adams. Um, but Adams was always his own worst enemy. Adams grew up with this sort of Puritan mindset that he could never be perceived as wanting adulation. You know, he could never go for it himself, and yet it's what he always wanted. He lived almost as a paradox his whole life. And so he knew that he was gonna be forgotten because he was so independent. He was not gonna make decisions for the popular thing. He was gonna do what he thought was sort of best for the country, and he created enemies that way all the time. But I give him enormous credit because he made some of the toughest decisions that were not in his best interest. I'll give you an example. I mean, one of the toughest decisions of any president is whether or not to go to war. And late in Adams's term, he was only a one-term president, it was clear that most of the country wanted us to go to war with France. France was doing all kinds of things against the United States, shipping, hundreds of ships were being captured by the French. They had rebuffed our, our uh, ministers and the whole XYZ affair, you might recall, or they demanded a bribe just to see our ministers. So the whole country was rallying to go to war, which by the way, we were totally unprepared for. 
And Adams's cabinet, which was the leftover from Washington, all much more aligned to Hamilton than Adams, you can see the interactions, wrote this speech that basically said, here's all the reasons we need to go to war. Mr. President, give this speech. And so Adams gave the speech, but he changed the ending. He actually said, we're going to go and we're going to negotiate one more time. And it ended his career. It actually ended the Federalist Party because it created this huge diversion with the, Federal, uh, with the Hamiltonians. And, and again, Adams lost the election and was sort of never heard from again politically for the you know, last 25 years of his life. But he made the decision in the best interest of the country, which he claimed later was the most important decision of his life, not to go to war. And he did those kinds of things throughout his life. He made enemies for it but I give him a ton of respect for having the wherewithal to kind of do what he believed was true north, kind of the right thing. Yeah, I mean, there is a courage in, in convictions. I mean, that's one of the themes of, of Hamilton, at least the musical, is the, um, the difference between Hamilton and Burr. Hamilton kind of following what he believed his true north was and what he thought was right and willing to take risks and stake out and be principled, whereas Burr kind of traveled whatever made his career better, you know, like wherever the wind blew for him more effectively. And I guess there was the, the moment of truth for Hamilton where he was going to weigh in on, on who should be the next president, Burr or Jefferson. And he chose, he publicly supported Jefferson, his sworn enemy, because he valued Jefferson's courage of convictions over Burr's, you know, uh, cowardice of convictions. Yeah. And so, um, so I, I, you know, I, I like to learn about the good and the bad of people. I'm, I'm starting to find out because A, it makes me feel more optimistic about today because the truth of the matter is, is that we oversimplify history sometimes in terms of, um, Looking back, and we often say it's never been as worse than it is right now at this moment. And that might be true on some dimensions, but some of it, it's always been bad in terms of, you know, uh, politics and the role of the media can be improved. And all of these things, I think, are part of our DNA as a country. Yeah, I mean, what, what about the 40 or 50 years in the run up to the Civil War? Um, and I think that's actually where there's some, there's a long patch of semi-forgettable presidents, but that's a, uh, I think it's a very robust area for for further kind of digging in. I mean, do you agree? You're the historian. Yeah, if you go from the Missouri Compromise of 1820 until Fort Sumter in 1861, really that entire stretch was leading to war. And all we did was delay it at times. But as the sides became more and more entrenched over states' rights and slavery, these were the topics, it was intractable. Um, and as the North continued to um, object to the South, as they called it, the peculiar institution, not as necessarily abolitionist, but it was about expansion. Were we gonna keep this bottled up in the Southern states where it already existed, but like the rise of the Republican Party was about, we've got, we got the Mexican session after the Mexican War, we got all this new land, settlers wanted to go there, where we can have expansion of slavery. 
And that was the major topic through the Compromise of 1850, the you know, bleeding Kansas in the, you know, later in the 1850s, ultimately leading to Lincoln's election and then secession and then Fort Sumter. But it was always this struggle. And frankly, those forgettable presidents that you talked about had pretty common themes. They were almost all from the North. They hated the abolitionists because they thought the abolitionists were causing trouble. And it all went back to the Constitution. This was the real challenge for these presidents is that, you know, again, like we were when we were in government, we swore to uphold the Constitution. Slavery was embedded in the Constitution. That compromise that went back to 1787 was the seed that really carried forward. And so you have people like Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan who were saying, abolitionists stop. The law is settled. The Constitution says slavery is acceptable and we can't stop it. But that movement obviously changed. And there was one, uh, obviously a non-president. Some of the great debates you know, we get in the Senate um, occurred around that time of 1850 with the Compromise of 1850. And this guy, William Seward, who became Lincoln's Secretary of State, made this comment that sometimes there's a higher law. And that idea of the higher law above sort of the Constitution, the moral characteristic, was slow to catch on. But as Lincoln came along and eventually, uh, you know, war was underway, the fervor started to, you know, finally build um, where this all, you know, came, came to be uh, in the war. But it was this, again, it was a tension for 40 years of trying to figure out how do we resolve this constitution that says slavery is okay to the people who said we will never allow it to expand. How do we resolve that? And the only way ultimately to resolve it was civil war. So I would imagine the fact that we went to war would imply that the political discourse and the methods of scoring wins on the policy battlefield were as ugly as everyone laments things are today. Yeah, at times, certainly, yes. You know, there were certainly times where that would be as a lull. You know, we've, we've heard about the era of good feelings under James Monroe, which, which was more of just a couple of years. But there were periods where, you know, where we didn't have quite as much anxiety. But the deeper we got past the Compromise of 1820, and with the deeper we got into, you know, after the, the Mexican War, and we had all this new land, the Wilmot Proviso, you probably remember, was this thing that was uh, put into the House to say, we will never allow further expansion of slavery. That Wilmot Proviso was debated by every Congress and every administration for years and very um, aggressively. Again, one of the ones who was most aggressive on that was a former president, John Quincy Adams. Quincy Adams leaves the White House after one term, is then elected for the rest of his life to go to the House. And he became one of the most strident abolitionists and was often in yelling matches um, on the floor of the House advocating against these pro-slavery uh, perspectives, including what they call the gag rule, where petitions were no longer allowed to be read related to slavery. And he would rail against that. Eventually, this was an intractable problem. And as soon as Lincoln was elected, even before he had done anything or said anything as president, states started to secede because they, they anticipated he was going to be uh, dictatorial toward them. And so they took the first shot and we had civil war. All right, so we're gonna go to a break, but here's the, I'm gonna give you the question before the break you can think about, which is, you know, 
Hollywood often cre- has often in history created this vision of the president as as being at points noble, always following their. Tr- I mean, there are versions of Hollywood presidents that are bad, but the Hollywood version of the president that is, uh, you know, a little bit more, you know, uh, Frank Capra esque, you know, are out there. Yeah. And I want to know which president lived up to that like like which president had had the highest moral character and went above the political fray um in a way that leads to this type of idealization that has occurred over time in america so that's my question when we get back from the break gov actually is brought to you by the good folks at the fed scoop radio network be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at fed scoop as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. All right, Danny, we're back. We're with David Fisher, a presidential historian. Um, you posed a very, very interesting question, but I, I before we get to it, I wanna, I'm, I'm going to use the power of having my mic on right now to ask a different one. When I was watching Hamilton, it, it occurred to me, because I was so entertained by the King George character, he was hysterical, right? I mean, yes, we can admit to that. But yeah. it dawned on me, I went back and I looked. Um, England banished the slave trade in 1803 and banished slavery in all their colonies in 1833. If we had not, if we had not pulled ourselves out of um, a uh, uh, status as a colony of England, would we have eliminated slavery sooner and therefore prevented that um, original sin of American democracy from being um, committed? So I think the odds are probably uh, no, because there would have been many other reasons to try. I, I think that would have been itself a catalyst to again, try to have a revolution. I mean, I don't think, if you look at what the South did against its brethren, the North here in the United States, they fought a, you know, essentially a revolution to escape. I'm, I'm confident they would have done the same and whether or not the North would have joined them on that topic was, you know, is again, obviously speculation. But um, the fact that England did and was a leader across the world in trying to get rid of slavery did apply some pressure and was one of the reasons folks thought that uh, one of the reasons why England did not come in on the side of the South during the Civil War is because they had been so vocal against slavery since the 1830s, as you said, um, which was a big deal because if France or England had come to the, the South side in the Civil War, it could have been a different result. I mean, France was so busy conquering Mexico at the time that they didn't have any time or capacity to focus on the South. But again, uh, England had, had been so against slavery um, that I think that was one of the reasons that kept them out of it. But I, I think if they had tried to impose that after all the, you know, we, we went to war over taxation without representation. I think if they tried to impose no slavery, for better or worse, I believe that it would have just been another cause for revolution. All right, now I get to my question. Who's the, who's the, who's the Frank Capra president in your mind? So I'll give you a couple of answers. And the first one, Maybe unsatisfying to folks because it's so obvious, but the answer is George Washington. I mean, George Washington is the archetype for a reason. 
He is the myth as well as the man. And, and I, I actually resisted this temptation to sort of put him on that pedestal as I was you know, do doing all my research and reading all these books. Um, because it just sounds so easy. Well, of course, you know, uh, never tell a lie, the cherry tree, you know, the whole cherry tree thing and uh, on the white horse, but he, he was that guy. And the greatest example of that, which is actually featured in Hamilton, is his willingness to step down. I mean, we can't understand today what it was like to not only elect a leader, but to have that leader willingly choose to stop leading. I mean, he could have been a king for life. He could have been a dictator. The, the country would have given him anything they wanted, he wanted. And he left and went at the top of his game when, you know, at, uh, at the end of the revolution, he went back to Mount Vernon. And then after two terms, he set the one of the most important precedents that we had was the two-term presidency, that we would have new leaders that would come in. And a lot of success, uh, following presidents really followed that pattern. So the fact of all the other things that he did and, and the virtuous nature in which he brought to the job, the fact that he was willing to lead on his own um, is as virtuous an idea that you can, that you can imagine. Now, I'll give you another example that's very, very different. And perhaps the, the, the opposite of who you would expect to be on this list. I'm going to talk about Chester Arthur. Uh, and, okay. and again, we, we should At least you didn't say we, Nixon. I think you're going to go Nixon. And, 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 and I actually should president? say, yeah. So <laughs> at, the, at the beginning of this, my focus over the last three or four years has primarily been thus far through the first 21 presidents. And so Arthur is, uh, happens to be number 21. And so I have more recent insight, if you will, on, on those than I have uh, on the more recent ones. But so Arthur was the quintessential spoilsman. He was not a politician. He had no business being president. He didn't want to be president. He was terrified of being president. He wanted to be vice president. He thought that was a thrill. And so, because he, he was one of these, you know, at the time we talk about the civil service. I mean, the civil service was all about patronage and power. People were elected president, not because of ideology in the Gilded Age. It was because they wanted power to hand out thousands and thousands of jobs. And that would help them get their next uh, election cycle. And, and Chester Arthur lived this life for his entire adult life in the state of New York for the senator named Roscoe Conklin. And Arthur was, again, the quintessential spoilsman who used, they did these assessments against civil servants who had to pay money to get their job and that money would go to the party to help get future elections. And so this was his life again for 20 or 30 years. So he becomes vice president, Garfield's assassinated, Arthur's terrified of being president and everybody assumes he's gonna make Conkling the Secretary of State and basically let Conkling run the country. And he did the opposite. He realized that not only would his presidency be ruined, but this, this little momentum towards sort of civil service reform and bringing you know, uh, talented individuals in to do these jobs and not just again, quote, political hacks who happen to be around to take on these critical civil servants jobs, again, that we've all served in, uh, you know, a hundred years or more later. Um, Arthur bought into that as president of the United States. It changed him. And he made the decision to send Conkling home, wouldn't give him a job, did not dish out a whole bunch of jobs to their, quote, stalwart friend, which is what they were called. And he signed the Pendleton Act, which in 1883 was really the first civil service reform that had any stickiness to it. 
And it really, again, people today may, may complain about, you know, why doesn't the executive get to choose all the civil servants? You know, why does he only have these political appointees and you have the deep state and all these other complaint kind of things? But it was so much worse back in the 1800s when competence was not an issue and it was all about currency, was handing out jobs and it was becoming untenable. Um, on a level that's, again, difficult to understand today. And just poor Chester Arthur, who didn't want to be president at all, easily could have succumbed to, uh, to the temptation of just being what he had always was. He did the opposite. So I put him on that list, uh, which I think would surprise most people. I need to learn more about Chester Arthur. Who is the most like President James Marshall the fictional president in Air Force One played by Harrison Ford? Great question. Yeah, awesome. I mean, we've got to get a that movie question. reference. That's, that is your best question in the history of it, actually. <laughs> Maybe ever? On GovAction? Yes, All right, yes, I, it is. I it get is. to stay. So okay. the last couple of days, I've actually been anticipating, what is the movie question they're going to ask me on this podcast? And I didn't know what it was, and I did not anticipate this one. First of all, great movie. Uh, one of my favorites. Um, so somebody who is cunning and daring and principled, um, boy, I'm going to be really a big cop-out and go back to Washington, but... Um, not Teddy? Because of the, well, so Roosevelt, not, not probably not. Um, you know, and certainly, again, I'm trying to think of the military heroes because he had that military twist to him uh, in the character, which was part of his uh, DNA. Uh, Maybe Kennedy, they, but Kennedy's back was so bad, he would have never yeah. beaten up all those terrorists. Eisenhower? <laughs> Probably not Eisenhower. Eisenhower is way too austere. But Kennedy has certainly some of that characteristic, and he, and he also had the communication stand, you know, ability to be a Harrison Ford comparable. Kennedy could be in that mix, um, you know, again, in, probably in his Tyler. earlier days. Um, uh, definitely not. Was he like a war hero? Tyler or Taylor, two different guys. Oh, yeah. Zachary Taylor and Tyler too. Well, so that was Tyler. He was not a military guy. Um, and but Zachary Taylor was 40 years right. in the military. Is that, uh, uh, Arthur was the least likely person to be president. Taylor was the least likely person to be elected president. Nobody knew anything about Zachary Taylor other than he was a 40-year military guy today, and he owned slaves. By the way, that, that continues yeah, exactly. to today. <laughs> and so fill us in a little on Taylor and maybe why he could be the character. So I don't think Taylor would be. Um, I think he's, he's not dynamic. In fact, if you look at the cover of my Taylor biography, you would see a picture of this sort of frumpy guy in, an, in a visual that I finally found a picture that actually depicts he never, he, he wore a floppy hat, he wore jeans and a, and a jacket, he wore a scarf, he was the down-to-earth regular Joe who happened to be a, a long-term military leader who had success on the battlefield. And his success at the beginning of the Mexican War basically made him president. But I'll tell you one thing about Zachary Taylor, where again, he surprised people. And this is one of the things that jumps out at me when we study the presidents, is when they sort of go against their pattern and do something, again, kind of for the greater good, Taylor did that as well. So Taylor, again, he had never voted in an election. He had no political ideology whatsoever. He's now president of the United States. And everybody assumed he was pro-slavery because he was a slaveholder from the South. He was a plantation owner in addition to a military officer. But he was adamantly against slavery expansion, which most people didn't know at the time he was elected. And in his first year, 
he actually gives a speech in the town of Mercer, Pennsylvania. And he makes this assertion in like one sentence out of the blue, the North doesn't have anything to worry about about slavery expansion under his watch. And the South went crazy. Oh my God, this is a traitor. What is he gonna do to us? But he, he went against expectations and came out and again was trying to bottle this up to preserve the union because he knew if slavery expanded, the union was gonna continue to fracture. It just was inevitable. And so he thought if we could keep slavery where it was, and again, he was a slaveholder, then the union could survive. And to do that, he, he was adamantly against the expansion of slavery. So a guy who was only in office for a little over a year, he, he died in, in you know, July of the, uh, of the 1850s, so when, you know, a year and a half after he became president. Um, he doesn't have much of a record, but that one moment in Mercer, Pennsylvania was a big deal, I thought, where he stood his ground, made a point, and that, that mattered to the people who were fighting over this topic of slavery expansion. I wanna go back to your, your story about um, the civil service, because one of the interesting things going back to Hamilton again, the themes in Chernow's book and obviously, therefore, you know, legitimate historical themes around meritocracy versus aristocracy being critical at the beginning of, of the union. Yeah. And all concerns about, and a lot of politics around, well, they're going to take us back to the aristocracy and anything that was like carried down through bloodlines as as ownership or like was, was looked upon as like they're returning us to England and the monarchy. Yeah. Um, yet the story that you told and what you reflected through history was like this, this ongoing patronage that took place in government positions. So it seems like we, it's human nature or it just was uh, in the DNA of so many of the, of, of the early, um, policy officials or politicians of our government to kind of slide back away from meritocracy at times. Is that fair or? So um, I'll give it maybe a two-part response because I think the first part reflecting on Hamilton's time, the, the arguments between Adams and Jefferson, who again were really close friends. I mean, they actually adored each other earlier in their careers before they became ideologically estranged and they went their complete separate ways and had all kinds of problems. But this was one of the fundamental things that they uh, struggled with because Jefferson was so adamant against hereditary anything. He fought this in the state of Virginia. He fought it at the national level. Whereas Adams was um, much less worried about that because he thought, you know, competence, if you want to have the best, you got to have sort of the blue blood folks. And if they rise to the top, you know, and so be it because we'll be better off for it. And Jefferson was, no, it's, it's heredity was the worst idea of sort of unfairness. Then you fast forward, it wasn't as much heredity, but it was this patronage was all about political power. And political parties, which we haven't really touched upon yet, which really grew out of the election of 1800 uh, when, when Jefferson took Adams' spot. And, and you saw this divide from a political standpoint really into two parties. We had a two party system for the whole history of the country. The names have changed, you know, new ones have been introduced every once in a while, but basically we've been a divided two party system. To retain power, you needed votes. How do you get votes? You gave out jobs. 
and you gave out jobs at the local level, at the state level, and the federal level. And guys like Martin Van Buren, who becomes president, was a master of this. They called him the great magician, in part because he was a master at creating electoral victories through these processes. And, and again, you, we, we talk about Arthur and, and the era that he had been prior to becoming president was sort of all about this concept of using patronage as power to get elected. It was not about competence. And then, and then finally, the reformists came along really in the 1870s and said, enough, enough scandals, the scandals of the Grant administration, were, which, which were really problematic and in the cabinet level scandals. And then Garfield gets assassinated by someone who was an office seeker. And finally, you had this momentum to pretty dramatically change how political positions were handed out or, or, or um, po political appointments, but you know, civil servants positions. And it took some pretty dramatic things to occur to finally get us to the Pendleton Act and then further legislation that you know, gets us to where we are today in, in the world that we served in. But it was, it was a long time coming. Uh, and a lot of it had to do with parties and political power. So I have a, a, a I want to, I want Dave to talk about his project and here's right. how I'm going to pivot to that. And then we'll do our final questions, Dan. And I think I came up with a question that's going to beat your, your Harrison Ford oh, question. Wow. So I'm pretty excited right. about it. Okay. Now I have to so, one. so the thing that's so special about Hamilton, the musical is how it, 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 it gets people excited at all ages and presents history in a digestible way. And Dave, you and I were talking that you have a project to, to, to present the history of the, the, the biography of presidents in a digestible way. Because if you want to read Chernow's book or listen to it on tape, it's pretty thick. It's 38 hours on Audible. Uh, so it's a big investment of time. But you have a project that involves uh, getting uh, uh, information about our presidents in a much more digestible way. Can you talk about your project? Absolutely, and thanks, Danny. I mean, I've uh, been sort of, as you said, a historical uh, historian buff uh, for, for many, many years, and I have this collection now of uh, a little over 1,100 presidential biographies that consumes large portions of my house, many of which, you know, I've read, and I, I realized in my, my personal sense over time was, again, people don't have the time to invest in you know, a lot of these larger biographies, which I love and I devour them. Um, but wouldn't it be something to be able to have concise yet robust biographies, you know, 125 pages, something like that, where th there's not a lot of fluff. You're going to get the essence of their life from birth to death. Um, you're going to get a lot of quotes from the individual because that's one of the things that I like to see is what were their actual words, either from their diaries or their letters, and what would they actually say and tell their stories with you know, some, some associated commentary along with it, but do it in a compact, sort of robust, but compact way. And so I started writing, and, and I've written now uh, 20 uh, presidential biographies. They're just sitting on my hard drive right now is that I do this in my own time at some point, try to figure out how to get it out maybe to the public. Um, but started with Washington. I finished Garfield a month or so ago and now into Arthur. And I figure I'll just keep going. And at some point, maybe there will be a, a market out there where I can make these available in bite-sized chunks where somebody who wants to learn about Chester Arthur, who wants to learn about, uh, you know, Franklin Pierce, uh, as well as Andrew Jackson and Thomas Jefferson and 
fascinating characters who had really interesting lives, not just their presidencies, but their lives, but tell that story in something that somebody can read in three or four hours instead of, you know, three or four weeks. That was kind of the idea. And so I've been at it for, uh, you know, three, four years now, and kind of we'll see where it goes. And I think in the era of podcasting and Audible, like if you said, Danny, spend, you know, you have a car ride to New York to see your parents, it's four hours. You'd want to, you tackle Chester Arthur or Zachary Taylor or Woodrow Wilson. I'd be super interested in that, you know, because as a, you know, and, and I, and I'd love for, you know, for my kids also to like, you know, have that kind of primer on, on a president and learn more and, and hear it through that historian's perspective. Such a cool project. Um, I'm excited for you to, to finish. I know you're going to let me read some of them, which I'm super excited about. Um, but yeah, I just think it's a great idea to make his, to make history more digestible for people, especially like high school students and civics classes and um, very exciting. Thank you, Danny. Yep, that's the goal. No, All I right, agree. Dan, I think final shot. Yeah, no, Don't give away your shot. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I think it's a very very cool project and I, I like the I like the format and the structure and I, I agree with Danny it would be um, it would be a great way you know if you could condense it down to your average long car ride that would be fantastic um, so you've gone through you know 21 of the presidents but you've you've been focused on all 45 uh, along the way could you could you Give us just a couple of examples of things that have surprised you or or shocked you as you as you've done your research. I think it'd be it'd be interesting here, you know, kind of like the e-entertainment television version of uh, of the of the presidents. Yeah, I'm surprised by almost all of them somewhere along the way. Um, Jefferson, as we've talked about earlier, um, again, very different, I think, from the, the caricature version of it, that we think of him on the lofty pedestal based on the Declaration and all of his foibles sort of along the way. Andrew Jackson is an unbelievable character that uh, you know, sort of has to be seen to be believed. I mean, he believed that the end justified the means and, the, and that was the end was whatever he thought was right. I mean, he basically committed acts of war against Spain that were unauthorized. And imagine if a two-star general did that today, committed acts of war against a foreign country. He arrested a federal judge because he didn't like what he was saying. And it was during a time of war. Um, and he did all kinds of things that were sort of crazy on the one end, but also were what made him so popular, is that people loved that audacity about him and some of that genuineness about him. And so trying to juxtapose those different sides of a really complicated person, um, I find sort of fascinating. And now I'll jump to um, maybe two other references. One is, is a more recent one, which I haven't spent a lot as much time on recently, but Harry Truman to me is a fascinating character. Truman came out of nowhere. Again, he became vice president for Roosevelt right at the sort of, you know, when everyone knew that Roosevelt was not gonna live through his fourth term. He was confronted with so many major decisions for someone who had never been in an executive role before. He had been a senator, but he had not been a prominent one. And the way he rose to the occasion on some of these really tough global issues, I thought uh, was sort of enormously fascinating. But the last one, um, and I spent a lot of time on, on our friend Abraham Lincoln, who I think my opening line in, in the book about him is, look, Abraham Lincoln saved the Union and freed the slaves. Sort of mic drop, and you know, end of story. That was 
the two most intractable problems the country probably has ever faced is this uh, fracture of the union and what to do about slavery. And he saw both of them and don't let anybody tell you it was anybody else because he led it. I mean, certainly other people were involved. But without him and his determination throughout that war uh, that he gave his life for, he gets all a lot of credit for that. And yet, he was the most divisive president in the history of the country. And, and look what happened. He was elected and seven states seceded before he was even inaugurated. He, he gave himself powers that the Constitution did not give him. He ignored the Supreme Court. He ignored constitutional authority. He did these things, again, in the context of end justifies the means, because the bigger picture was preserve the Union, and eventually it was to free the slaves, not initially. So he's a much more complicated character to me than those that just focus on the outcome, which is, again, the, the pinnacle uh, having an impact on this country's history, the manner in which he did it, he would admit, look, in peacetime, I couldn't do this stuff. But he basically said in time of war, I can do whatever I want to make this happen. And I think there's some nuances in there that, that uh, hopefully people will see if, you know, if, I, if I get my version of that story out there, they'll see that there are some nuances to even the story of Abraham Lincoln. All right, Danny. Well, that that was a good question, and it kind of stole the thunder of what I thought was going to be my better question. But <laughs> it's a different version of the question, which is, Dave, which president would you most like to see the movie of in terms of their, you know, someone to make a movie about this president? So to me, it would be Jackson. And because I've actually thought about this. This is one of your movie questions that I anticipated you might ask. And the reason I find, I think Jackson is so fascinating. First of all, it's, it's uh, cinematic because of the military stuff. I mean, to, you know, I, I don't think we've ever really had a movie version of the, of the Battle of New Orleans at the end of the War of 1812, which is one of the most decisive battles in the history of military warfare. It was all based on sort of what Jackson did to provide a defense to New Orleans that he just slaughtered the British who couldn't get past him. To, to see the depiction of his sort of military prowess when he, his, his troops were going to, um, felt that their enlistment was up in the early stages of the War of 1812, and they were about to go home. And he had a different interpretation of their enlistment. And he said, you, you will not mutiny on my watch. And he literally stood in front of his own troops with a cannon and a rifle and dared them to go home. And they all stood down because they knew he meant it. I mean, he was involved in duels. He was, I mean, he killed somebody in a duel, he took bullets in a duel, and then as president, he was, um, with what he did sort of with the Bank of the United States, which again was an intractable problem, and he was determined to do certain things that were controversial and didn't care, and he did it, and he created controversy, which I think would be interesting cinematic, but the people loved him for it. So I think he actually would be the most But he, was interesting. he had a dark side too, of course, right? Much of this was a dark side. Much of the, again, the end justified the means component of what he did and the way he did it was, uh, I mean, if you look at, um, here's, here's Jackson's view on the Trail of Tears. So this, this horrifically bad thing where he believed that in his mind, the only way to preserve the Indian culture was to transport Indians away from the white man. And so he put things in motion that gave the Indians no choice. 
they could either stay, and he basically said, look, the states are going to do anything they want to you, and the federal government isn't going to help you. Or you could assimilate, which they weren't going to do, or you can leave. Those are your three choices. And so the only choice that was viable was that they were going to leave, and there was this horrific, you know, uh, killing zone where, where through the transportation of these Indians across the Mississippi River, thousands died. Yet in Jackson's mind, he liberated them. He gave them sort of this freedom to go and be themselves out away from the white man. He justified every action in his mind, whether it was a duel, a physical duel, or a political duel, or a relationship duel. He was always right. The enemy was always the enemy. And while his followers loved that about him, he created as, certainly as many enemies, rightfully so, for sort of the terrible manner in which he behaved uh, when people were not on his side, which again is why I think it would make for an interesting movie if you could actually capture uh, both sides of him, which of course is what I try to do you know, in, the, in my book version of him, is to, is to portray both sides. And that's with a lot of these guys. None of them are pure. None of them are idealistic, you know, in, in, in totality. They all have sides to them. And, and I think a part, of, part of our role is to enlighten on both sides. And then people can judge for themselves the greatness and, and, and the opposite. Okay, this was terrific. I am astounded by your knowledge. And I could keep going because I just love this stuff. But uh, thank you for, for joining. Uh, for talking through some of this history, for helping us celebrate the release of Hamilton and how exciting that is to get excited about American history, giving us a break from, from all the stress uh, and, and tragedy of, of COVID-19 that's hitting the country right now. It was, it was a nice break for me and, and, and hopefully for our listeners as well. Thank you, Danny. It's been, an, it's been a pleasure. I've been a long time listener of Gov actually, so it's fun to be part of the show. Thank you. Dan's going to say, you're the one, Dan. Yeah, no, I didn't even say it, Danny. I know how much it drives you crazy. Now you're doing it. Look at that. See, I, get, I get geeked up about all the kind of stuff you guys talk about, too. These are, these are sort of my areas of interest. So I, I appreciate the chance to bring it together here on the show. Well, maybe when you finish with the presidents, you can come back and do, I don't know, IRS commissioners, <laughs> uh, deputy directors of management. Maybe at some point you'll get down to GSA administration. But other that important Americans like Ben Franklin and the person who's going to potentially replace Andrew Jackson on the 20. Harriet Tubman, you know, yeah. some of the more, some of the most influential Americans who were never president. That would be an interesting next year. That would be great. I think, I think I've any... got a little work. I think I've got a little work in front of me, but as soon as I finish president number 45, <laughs> then I'll get back and, and maybe touch on something. Yeah, like maybe right after president 22 or 23, just jump off and do Tubman just so that everyone can <laughs> get a flavor of what that would be like. But David, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Danny, thank you for bringing David and Billy. Thank you for being you know, strong and confident in the background as usual. Thanks. Bye-bye, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening to GovActually. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us at GovActuallyPod, or you can write to Danny at Danny at GovActually.com, or to me at Dan at GovActually.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to GovActually Podcast on iTunes and write a review. That's how we get pushed up further and more people can hear about us.